Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, the stories we tell about the Raven are from 2012. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and, you know, I think my head would be large enough to play Edgar Allan Poe. And I am Thomas Mariani, and uh, it might be me, then again, it could be an elaborate uh, version of me as uh, detailed through various stories uh, told by my family. Who knows? You have to stick around to the end to find out. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of, he sucks! <laughs> it's, a, it's a very short documentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but welcome, everybody, to The Devil Edge Double Bill, where every week uh, Adam and I cover a good and a bad movie related to the topic in question. And uh, this was a topic as chosen by our patrons. Uh, shout out patreon.com slash tedbpod. More on that later. Um, and uh, we are covering today, uh, because the patrons chose it, uh, you know, we like doing years on the show, like going back to a previous year. And uh, this time we decided like we wanted to do one from the recent past in terms of uh, we started the show in 2018. It's almost been five years. It'll be come May, five years since we started the show. And uh, we've usually done, you know, episodes about like movies that were released within that year during the years that we've uh, been doing the show. But we decided to go back to earlier in the 2010s, which I still think is, like, interesting in terms of, like, particularly 2012, I would argue, is a very curious transitional year, I would argue, from what we had in the 2000s to what we kind of have now. Like, 2008 we've talked about previously, and that was, like, the year a lot of these trends kind of started. I think 2012 is the year that a lot of, especially sort of the IP focus, really cemented itself. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, because if you look at, like, in my notes here, I have some uh, stuff about, like, the top 10 box office hits, for example, of this year, uh, where you've got, at number one, The Avengers, which I would argue Iron Man kind of, like, we said that kicked off that particular the MCU craze, but then Avengers, I think, really cements it. Because before that, you had, like, the stuff in between Iron Man and the Avengers, like, Iron Man 2, Captain America, the first Avenger, the first Thor, that were, like, successful, but at the same time didn't guarantee that, like, this would be the dominant franchise that it is. And then Avengers made, like, over a billion dollars, and I think kind of cemented that permanently. <laughs> I think from yeah. there, it's just kind of been, like, a nonstop ride, pretty much. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, for sure. But uh, then you also had, like, Skyfall's number two, The Dark Knight Rises, The Hobbit, Unexpected Journey. Remember when they made Hobbit movies? They're going to make them again. Um, the <laughs> Warner Brothers wants that kind of shit to happen again. Uh, great. Good. Awesome. Ice Age Continental Drift. Remember when they made Ice Age movies? Um, Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2, The Amazing Spider-Man, Madagascar 3, The Hunger Games, the first Hunger Games, and Men in Black 3. So you start getting that sort of, like, franchise dominance. Obviously, that had been a thing prior to this year, necessarily. But this is, I think, the first year where especially you start getting, like, multiple billion-dollar grosses is notable. Because, like, Skyfall, 
Dark Knight Rises and Avengers all made like over a billion, and that happens now like every year. There's at least a couple, unless it's like a COVID year or something like that. Yeah, no, I mean that, and it's unfortunately that's, I mean the way it is now. Every year, probably like you said, even post this, it seems like the top ten are franchises, sequels, remakes, or something related to an IP, and it's kind of a shame. Yes, uh, though we should also create, uh, this is the same year for, in terms of the Oscars, uh, our Oscar nominees for Best Picture, you got um, Amore, Beast of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Mis, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Lang's Playbook, Zero Dark Thirty, and the winner, Argo. You know, everyone's favorite movie. That's a rough lineup. I would never call any of those, like, a, a great movie. I mean, there's some fine movies in there, but none of those are, like... What a phenomenal film. I mean, this is still them recovering off of, like, the artist year. Where yeah, fuck. Had just one, so I think it's at least a slight step up in that there are a solid amount of good movies that would hurt you. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not like the artist in Crash. It's not a bunch right. of those. Yeah, that's true. It's not quite those. Argo is just like, it's, you know, a movie that came out and everyone was like, that was reasonably entertaining. Uh, and then Ben Affleck's, you know, career kind of sputtered and spiraled and now he's got that Air Jordan's movie coming out so you know things kind of tumble and weave which wow I I really don't care about that movie at all it looks like a movie that like I have would only have interest in seeing is like on TNT circa like the mid 2000s while my father fell asleep on the couch yeah it looks like an Apple Plus original to me I wouldn't quite say that because it feels more just like a movie that would have actually been successful, like I mentioned, like in the like the 90s or 2000s in theaters would have made a decent amount of money and then shown up on like TNT or something like that. I at least feel like it feels like a mid-budgeter that we wouldn't get that much, especially like we're talking about in 2012. Those movies kind of stop existing after this particular year, I would say. Yeah, that's true. I guess you know everything. What do I know? Well, why don't you uh, pray tell a bit more? Like, what do you think is sort of like significant to some degree about this kind of era or this year in film? I don't know. I wasn't awake. I was in a coma. No. Um, <laughs> I well, I think we kind of already hit it. Like, the, this is where you really start to see the sort of the really big franchises start to phase out the sort of little movies that could. Uh, I mean, Argo winning and all that, sure, but it's you're always going to to have those type of movies for best picture. It's very rare that, you know, I mean, obviously nowadays you get a superhero movie nominated almost every year or Top Gun Maverick or something like that. Like they still recognize sort of the big blockbuster movies, but I, I mean, it's just, that's all we get anymore. At least that put butts in the seats in theaters, like, Everything everywhere all at once, like obviously that had an incredible theatrical run, but that is so rare to happen. And uh, I think this is really the start of it, where if there's a movie coming out that's not tied to an IP or an existing franchise or based on a comic book or whatever the fuck, uh, if it's coming out and you want to see it, you better get there within the first like couple weeks or else it might not be in the theater anymore. And uh, I think that's a shame. It's hard to sort of be able to go see th- the really interesting films that come out anymore because uh, they just don't last. That's true. And then even then, like with the the superhero stuff, this also feels like the last time that you sort of had like filmmakers actually shaping those superhero franchises where, you know, I don't want to talk about them, but Joss Whedon added his stamp to the Avengers uh, and yeah. his particular uh, yeah. brand of snark 
has kind of affected every single one of those Marvel movies since this point. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Look how fucking cool I am. Let's show her butt. Well, well, look how cool I am, but also let me make a snarky remark about isn't this kind of silly that we're kind of doing this, but I'm still doing it, so it's still kind of cool, but I pointed out that it was silly. Right, that makes me, like, cool. I'm in on the joke, so I'm fucking cool. Right. And even at the same time, you also have, like, The Dark Knight Rises, where I would argue Nolan is, like, one of the last examples of that, even for, like, DC, where, like, after this, you would get, like, a Zack Snyder, obviously, but even he was trying to build a universe as opposed to, like, an auteur guy who is trying to make, like, at least, like, a trilogy as opposed to, like, no, we're trying to, like, expand this into, like, a large universe thing. And he even didn't want to do that fucking third movie. We've talked about it. You can tell yeah. like, he didn't really want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and by the way, hashtag restore the Snyderverse. That's no one has ever said that before. I'm going to be the first one. And it's a good thing you said it, and it's not at all, like, indicative of a sad, stupid sort of sect of the internet that should stop doing men. <laughs> yep, 100%. I'm the first. I'm the first. But, but you know, also a big thing about this year, just on, like, a personal note, this was the year I actually started doing podcast stuff, which, you know, shout out to our friend Rafe Telsch. He had his show, the Widescreen Warrior show, and I was a fan who, like, he just opened up things where, like, hey, anybody want to pop in and be on the show? Come on. And I was the only one who did it, and then I just became a co-host due to sticking around, <laughs> and that started me on the little podcast journey. So you have all, Rafe is to blame. <laughs> well, that's basically what I did with you. <laughs> I just started guesting on a show you used to be part of, and now I'm just kind of stuck around. I mean, I, mean, I could bow out at any minute, though. Believe me. Like, I, we <laughs> He's might tried get, many times. Yeah, we might get a couple <laughs> minutes into this, and I, I'm, I'm done. Like, who knows? <laughs> but, Adam, and miss out on this other episode, because especially compared to, like, 2012 is a year we've covered only a couple times, which is interesting to note when I put this poll together. We've only covered about... Uh, six movies from this year where you got The Dark Knight Rises, which we mentioned, but also Zero Dark Thirty, The Total Recall remake not too long ago, Brave, Lords of Salem, and your favorite Oogie Loves. Why would you want to miss out on a potential other Oogie Loves? Yeah, you're right. How dare I? Fucking... This shoe's brought you so much joy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And Christopher Lloyd and Jamie Presley, they are Hispanic. Oogie Loves. But yeah. we're not here to talk about Oogie Loves today, Adam. We're here to no. talk about the two movies you picked at the end of the last episode, uh, in which you had the bad pick of The Raven, and uh, my good pick of Stories We Tell. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in then with our bad pick, The Raven. This crime is familiar to me. Edgar Allan Poe. To what may I attribute the honor of your call? The night before last, a young girl and a mother were found murdered. The daughter's body was lodged in a chimney. The mother's head severed with a straight razor. You're referring to one of my stories, a work of fiction. I'm afraid I am not. Do you actually think that I murdered these people? What cannot be disputed is that your imagination is the inspiration of a horrendous crime. I love you, Edgar. Be careful. I believe the killer is taunting us. I challenge the brilliant detective mind of Edgar Allan Poe, a game of wits. I will kill again, and on that new corpse, I will leave clues. As unfortunate as this is, you may be uniquely qualified to cast light on our killer. It's almost like you want to talk about the bad pick first, because there's not really much. 
<laughs> what? No, that's never happened, especially with picks that you've had for this show recently. Never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never, never, ever. Um, but yeah, so uh, this is uh, the 2012 Raven. Not to be confused with the old Universal Monsters era Raven starring Boris Karloff or the 60s era The Raven also starring Boris Karloff. This is the uh, 2012 film from James McTeague, who was a guy who we, I, I believe he was the assistant director on like the Matrix movies. And uh-huh. the Wachowskis ended up kind of giving him uh, some, you know, directorial cachet with, like, V for Vendetta, a ninja assassin, and then, uh, yeah, The Raven, uh, which, um, if you don't know, this is the movie in which uh, John Cusack plays Edgar Allan Poe, but it's not um, a sad biopic about um, a drunk poet. Um, instead, it is a movie about Edgar Allan Poe assisting with solving murders that are all based around his stories. And... Uh, you may remember this movie existed. I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't, because it kind of just came and went like a wet fart. And uh, very similar to how it kind of uh, exists in our memories, I think, Adam, especially since this episode was delayed and we watched this movie like over a week ago. <laughs> there's not a lot. Yeah, there's not a lot there. No, no, no I, I agree. When, once I was doing research for this episode, I chose this movie based solely on, I remember the trailer. And I remember thinking, oh, God, that looks fucking stupid. And, uh... You know, after watching it, I, I don't know that I would say it's stupid. Uh, I think it's perfectly uh, a movie. Uh, I don't. I think it's inoffensive for the most part. I just it's it's so horribly miscast, and it's just it's fucking lame. It's just a lame movie. That, that's really what it is. It's not stupid. It's just fucking lame. And Cusack. God, man. I mean, part of me really wants to like John Cusack. You know, Better Off Dead and Gross Point Blank. And he was always kind of like the dark, like there was something there. Like he wasn't like your typical, whatever that fucking brat pack actor, like the rest of them were. Like there was something different about him. But man, as time's gone on, has he just done some fucking stinkers, man? And yeah. It's just like, I mean, whew. I think that's the interesting, honestly, the most interesting thing to talk about with this movie is I think this is the last time that it feels like he could lead a movie like this, which, to be fair, it's a, like a $26 million movie, which, once again, wouldn't really happen that much after this. Like, a mid-budget thriller movie about Edgar Allan Poe, even, would not really, like, happen nowadays. Now it would have to be, like, I don't know, part of a weird League of Extraordinary Gentlemen-style universe right, exactly. building up, where Edgar Allan Poe has a sixth sense for murder or something. Yeah, like him and T.S. Eliot team up in, like, a hot air balloon. <laughs> or Jules Verne, as this fucking movie teases by the end of it. Oh, that's right. Right, yeah. But um, but with, like, the Cusack of it all, like, Cusack, to me, was always so interesting because he was kind of, like, the laid-back, chill kind of cool, which is what uh-huh. made a lot of his sort of characters interesting. Like, even all the way back to, like, a Say Anything or even when you get to, like, around the high fidelities or the gross point blanks. Like, the only reason high fidelity, like, works at all is because of, like, his charm and Jack Black's charm. Because on paper, that movie's about awful people I would never want to be around. Oh, the worst fucking people. The worst people. <laughs> but they're charming enough to make that work. I think that was sort of, like, his saving grace he could turn on that charm. And then it's around this time, like, the beginning of the 2010s, where that laid-backness starts to become complete apathy. And, like, because this was not too long after, like, Hot Tub Time Machine. 
were like that movie has a lot of problems already but though even when i liked that movie when i first saw it he was always the big problem because he's like weirdly the lead character but his entire story is like completely throwaway and he looks dead inside the entire time (laughs) oh yeah he has no interest being there no like yeah yeah i mean even to the point where he didn't even want to do the sequel (laughs) <laughs> which the sequel to Hot Tub Time Cheat is not good. But still, it's like, I don't understand. And like, he'll pop up in these random action movies that are straight to DVD with like Tom Jane was in one of them. And he's always mm-hmm. playing like in a hitman or an assassin now. Like John Cusack, I think that's one of the big problems too. John Cusack does not have the makings of an action star. And he got pigeonholed into starting doing like action movies. And it just doesn't work. He does not fit that bill whatsoever yeah people dog on like say nick cage or some of the other people that do a lot of those like red box movies like travolta and shit yeah but at the very least like those guys can at least have like some kind of like presence or life to them yeah they're having fun at least right as opposed to cusack in all these movies has looked dead inside i don't think he has been alive in a movie since chirac the spike lee movie and that's been a while yeah i'd say that's accurate yeah yeah didn't he play nixon well, look, that's in the butler. That's, it's very, he's one of many weird No, there's a lot of problems. In that movie. Yeah, yeah, look, yeah. Like, like, Alan Rickman is Ronald Reagan. That's the weirdest one. <laughs> oh, God. That movie's very weird. Lee Daniels is the butler is a very weird movie. But anyway, um, to, to get back to, I guess, the, the Raven of it all, I would say here, Cusack is weirdly kind of like half tired, but also half at least kind of trying to do like a weird performance as uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, but I think the trouble is with this movie, like, you mentioned this earlier, where you're like, oh, it's, like, completely inoffensive, and honestly, like, with James McTeague and, like, all of that sort of potential silliness that could be there, it's kind of more insulting this movie isn't stupider. Like, I wish this movie went full bore with the stupidity of its premise, which is the dumb premise, and it's just like, if you're gonna do that, go as hard as, like, the one moment in this movie I thought was, like, kind of, like, fun and lively and weird is, like, the one death that's the pit in the pendulum, where the guy is, like, yeah. getting, like, completely sawed in half, and, like, the you have the close-up of the saw, and, like, the blood's coming down the blade, and I'm like, do stupid shit like that. Most of it's just, like, a really dull procedural yeah, it yeah, it totally. And it doesn't help too that, you know, back to whatever accent he's attempting to do sounds so forced. There's no chemistry between him and Alice Eve. There's no chemistry between him and sort of like Luke Evans even as like a bot buddy cop movie. There's no chemistry between him and the dumb fake pet raccoon they invented for him for this movie. Yeah, what the fuck was that about? Total studio note. I, I, Yo, 100%. It just it like, has to be. Mm, what if we gave him a pet of some sort, but a weird one? Because he's a weirdo, right? What about a raccoon? Yeah, right. Why not? Which is so stupid. Like, just use the title of the movie. Give him a pet bird. What the fuck? Right, give him a raven. <laughs> give him a raven. I don't know. No, no. We can't. Like, the raven's too predictable. Yeah, people identify him with a raven. So let's give him a raccoon. <laughs> oh god it's so stupid but uh you know and the thing is like gleason's fine he's trying in this mm-hmm. you know luke evans luke evans is reliable as luke evans can be and pretty much he i like luke evans a lot 
I don't know, to be fair, this is, I think, during tor- sort of his, like, wilderness period where I wasn't a fan of him. This feels kind of like what they, when people try to put him in sort of, like, cardboard, like, hunky guy kind of roles. Yeah, no, he doesn't work. The only time he's ever worked is when it's a fucking parody of that as Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. Right, he like worked the only as a parody. Right. Yeah. yeah, he works as a parody of these big, tough guys. Uh, or I thought he was pretty good in the Fast and Furious movie he was in, but it's right. just... Yeah, this movie is just miscast kind of up and down. And like you said, the tone of it, it becomes this weird, like, gray procedural movie where I completely agree. There, there's the part with the pitch and pit, the pendulum, which is super fun. Uh, the dude riding in on the horse into the ball is kind of fun. Like, it's mm-hmm. just crazy and lunacy. Uh, if this movie would have kept up that sort of tone and just really went for the gore and went for the the craziness of it all. I, it, it probably would have worked. You still would have had to recast it. I mean, it still wouldn't, wouldn't work with Cusack. You still Cusack. need somebody with more of like a pumpkin-shaped head to play Edgar Allan Poe. Because you can't, Cusack doesn't quite, Cusack has like a peanut head. He doesn't quite have like the good pumpkin, kind of big boulder head. That's why the guy who just played him in that uh, Cooper movie, which I haven't seen, but it's like as soon as I heard he's Edgar Allan Poe, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, Dudley uh, Dursley. From yeah, Harry yeah, you're, yes. yeah, you're like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm right. sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. Or like how Jeffrey Combs has played him a hundred times. Like, yeah, I get yeah. it. It works. You could have got Jeffrey Combs for this movie. You're telling me he wouldn't have done it? He absolutely would have done it. The problem is that they want to get somebody who, at this point, they felt was kind of a star, and yeah, they also sure. want to make him less of like a weirdo. With like you mentioned, like the Alice Eve love interest character, which has a lot of weird connotations. Given obviously she didn't exist, and this movie technically takes place not too long after his wife died, who was his first cousin, who was like 15 years his junior. In yeah. real life? Well, I'm not like, surprised they left that out. Right. Yeah, it's not, not shocking necessarily. Yeah. But it's all part of like yeah. the weird problem this movie has, where it's like we want to base this guy on like you know a real figure who people know because of like oh the Raven and uh, the Telltale Heart, all this stuff that we want to have that cachet. But like we don't want to include anything about this guy that feels anywhere close to him, except that he's like a drunk. Like uh-huh. that's about it. Like the only vaguely based on true story thing was that Edgar Allan Poe was like found on like a park bench. Like, yeah, nearly like, dead. Nearly yeah. dead, and then died at the hospital, really. Um, and they contrive a whole dumb mystery plot around this word. Like, also, the mystery plot is so weird, where, like, they, they want to have, like, red herrings. Like, maybe Poe actually did it because one of these victims was a critic. Or, oh, one of, like, maybe it could be this other person who's, like, involved, like her dad or any of these other people. And then it's, like, the guy who sets his typewriter who we saw in, like, a couple shots. I know. Because he's a fan. He's a super right. fan. Oh. Yes, now our work. We're so much alike. Oh, fucking get this tired-ass stupid trope. Like I said, they couldn't even do anything interesting. Like, you know what it worked? Honestly, have like you could take this idea and have it be Edgar Allan Poe in London trying to help find Jack the Ripper or something like that. Like, do something completely crazy but this that where it's just this fucking typist uh, it's just it's so stupid and where did he get the resources to build all these things and and literally build out the bottom of the newspaper company like what the fuck it's just so stupid like i don't even necessarily mind the idea of like oh it's the the edgar Allan poe um like sort of fanboy who's like trying to like 
put out like his different sort of like um, stories as like murders. Like I don't mind that idea necessarily. I think that could be interesting. It's just the trouble of like when it's a character like who is nothing, and then it's just like yeah, guess yeah, what? Yeah, I right. was there the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You never suspected a thing. No, I didn't. I didn't know you were here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, if they would have done something where you kind of get to know this character a little bit, or you don't see him at all. And then the, the reveal is it's just some fucking cr- crazed fan. But I hate that. The the beats. You know, I guess this movie is pretty fucking stupid. It's. I hate <laughs> the sort of the the stereotypical, like, Oh, who is it? Mystery, and you already know. Oh, it's someone we already seen before. Like that's pretty much a guarantee, right in the tone of this movie. Like it's going to be a, a reveal of some side character. Like at first, I thought it was going to be the one cop who eventually gets like his throat slit. Like I thought it was going to be him, or it was going to be the older cop. Or I'm like, this is just like obviously it's someone we've met. And it just the reveal is ridiculous. Or even Kevin McNally, who's the guy who plays the uh, like publisher guy. Yeah, like, oh, no, my my sales are going through the roof now that all these murders are happening. Yeah, something right because then that have been made sense. Like he's doing it to, for to get money and to sell his paper. Instead, it's just. <sighs> yeah, I don't know, and then, like Cusack doing his drunk acting is so bad. It's so bad, especially in the scene in the very beginning where he's trying to get a free like glass of whatever the f- brandy or whatever the fuck. Which, by the way, if you're getting if you're brandy drunk all the time, like oh god, stop. But and then he's like insulting everybody in the bar and stuff. Like it's just it's it's so dumb. You know, I fucking hate but, this movie. But like, <laughs> the thing is, like, if it embraced, like I said, that sort of that dumbness a bit more, because like with McTeague. That was kind of, like, what worked about, like, V for Vendetta and Ninja Assassin, was that dude, like, really leaned into, like, let's make this absurd kind of angle. Right. And it almost feels like post-Ninja Assassin not doing very well. He's like, well, I guess I gotta restrain that. It's like, no, man, that's that's what works about you. <laughs> Don't restrain yourself. <laughs> Go full bore with it. Yeah, because Ninja Assassin is out of control. Yeah. Like, it, it's fucking wild. That's why I love that movie. I love the action and the, the sort of just insanity of, like, the ninja magic and all that. Uh, yeah, this one is just too restrained. Like I said, if they would have went kind of full gusto with the violence or the gore and really made, like, this crazy, almost, like, slasher-type movie, or even, like, Saw or something, which the, you can tell there's tinges of that here, too. But if they would have really went for it, I mean, it could have been fun. Uh, it's just it. The whole thing feels like studio noted down to where it's its most mild. That's what it feels like. Yeah, I I, I would definitely agree with that. It feels definitely like this was probably some interesting kind of weird spec script that they dug up, and they're like, okay, let's we can do maybe something with this and get really got so far done. I think these are the type of movies that kind of killed sort of the, that mid-budget kind of fun thriller that we were that I've been talking about previously, along with like the huge amount of like IP driven movies that came out this year. Also a lot of these like very forgettable bland kind of thrillers, I think is what helped kind of like destroy that kind of like interesting little, you know, middle ground between super low budget movies that we are either plagued with like that or like the big IP movies. Like, I think just having these kind of things flood theaters made studios realize like, maybe we don't need to really bother with these anymore. I mean, what's the last one you can really think of? Like, I, yeah, I don't know. I, 
Well, I mean, there's... the thing is, like, they, they do come out, but they're never really in theaters as much. I think that's that's another thing we didn't even talk about with, like, 2012 is the last year before, like, the, in 2013 is when we start getting, like, I believe that's when, like, House of Cards premieres on Netflix, which, right. like, starts the whole Netflix streaming element, and I think eventually gets gives way to, like, movies premiering on there. So that's where you get those movies. They're just, like, on streaming services, and they're buried, and you don't really see them that much. But they're made. They're just lying around yeah yeah i mean unfortunately when shit like this comes out that's that tends to happen i mean all we need is a couple more real sort of critical bombs from the mcu i mean we already had eternals thor love and thunder and ant-man quantumania get about two more of those and you, you know they're gonna restructure a little bit i mean that's all it takes is just one really bad one to kill a franchise or kill a sort of a, I don't want to call it a movement, but a, a genre, really. Yeah, but even at the same time, like, I, I'm given a bit of hope by, like, as of even earlier this year, we had stuff like Plane. Yeah. Like, Plane is a very middle ground, fun, dumb, like, sort of mid-budget action movie that surprisingly, like, really worked with audiences, and now we're getting Ship, I believe, which is the spinoff with <laughs> fucking Luke, the Luke Cage Coulter. guy. I know, I want it to be called Boat so bad. <laughs> Instead of ship, well, look, just call it, it boat. No, I don't know. Keep up with like this theme of just like plane, ship, automobile. Yeah, so say call plane, boat, balloon, uh, <laughs> gyroscope, <laughs> <laughs> blimp, all of them with Mike Coulter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. why not yeah. so we might see a resurgence of those but hopefully you know there aren't as many sort of uh, the ravens out there necessarily yeah. I mean I think we're, we're kind of done with talking about the ravens so any passing final thoughts you potentially have about the raven um no <laughs> nah it's, it's a perfectly forgettable film I will never watch it again I will never remember that I even did watch it like five years from now I'm like oh yeah did I ever see that um I it's just Nah, it's another clunker for me on this one. Yeah, uh, Quoth the Raven. Oh yeah, that was a movie. I think that's all we're going to really remember really is. I'm going to remember you saying that more than anything because it was so terrible. Yeah, but it stuck in your mind, right? It actually had some kind of impact. Yeah, it's in there. Yes. Uh, But now let's talk about a very different film. Stories We Tell. When you're in the middle of a story... It isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness. Dad, can you just go back over that one line? I was being so real. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Well, I guess if you could start by describing Mom in as much detail as possible. She was the most fun I could think of as a child. She was very warm. She was, you know, full of life. I remember all of a sudden my mom not being around, and I can remember adults crying. Mom must have thought, what did I do wrong that led to this? I think it's our family, and every family has a story. Nobody ever talked about it. What do you remember me saying? This is a great story. This is a great, great story. So, uh, Stories We Tell came out uh, October 12, 2012, in Canada, uh, which is the native land of Miss Sarah Polly, who was the director of this documentary, we should mention, uh, one of the few documentaries we've covered on the show, only our second one, honestly. And uh, this is an interesting little movie that's basically, uh, if you're unaware, because this is a smaller movie, um, it is about 
um, Sarah Polly discovering uh, sort of the background of her conception uh, because uh, it's it's mainly about Polly interviewing her father and her other family members as uh, they sort of investigate her uh, lineage after their mother has died several years ago before like when Polly was very young and uh, so she's trying to investigate about like the sort of rumors that have gone around about like who exactly her father is because many say it wasn't like the man who raised her I, I've said this before I think on the show when we did like our best of the decade like ages ago uh, for this decade the 2010s this is one of my favorite movies of the decade I think it's such a fascinating documentary about sort of like looking back at your past and trying to like find out like the particulars of it but realizing that like that comes through the various different skewed perspectives of people around you in your life or even people that enter your life when you find out who they are um but i'm very curious adam uh, what did you think of stories we tell i liked it i liked it quite a bit i went in basically blind not knowing much about it other than kind of what you've mentioned here and there uh, and i did like probably read the imdb sort of you know brief summary and shit like that but i went in basically blind Watch it. Wasn't sure where it was going at first. Um, I, I like I said, I kind of knew like there's going to be some revelations about her childhood or whatever. And uh, I mean, you get that, but it, it it really sort of there's like a one-two punch moment that I was like, whoa, what the fuck? That really like I was really surprised by. I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, I, it's just kind of a really sweet movie about this family that you know might not be perfect the matriarch of the family might not have been a perfect person and she had problems too and you know her life wasn't easy either and it's sort of like breaking down sort of maybe the way you know certain people idolize their parents and hold them in such a different regard and look at them like oh they're my parents and not necessarily oh they're people too that are flawed and have problems and this is sort of the deconstruction of that i mean the fact that her one brother talks about how open he was talking to her father about his sex life with his mother and things like that like you don't hear about that that's sort of a taboo topic you don't really talk about and i mean as as you can tell even with the way the father reacts about it and and stuff like that i i thought it was a really cool different way of a sort of a deconstruction of a typical sort of family unit and uh you know there's just a lot more layers that keep coming on like you died didn't know until what halfway through that the two the one brother and the one sister were only her half brothers and sister you know that their mom was married before and it's just it kind of what happened to her with that and then it's just i found it all really really fascinating uh moving in parts too for sure and uh just a kind of a really interesting way to look at also a father-daughter sort of relationship yeah i really i I thoroughly enjoyed it yeah i mean it i think it does such a great job especially with like sort of doing the thing of like constructing your image of like who a person was you didn't get to know given that like diane polly her mother like died when she was only like 11 or so um it, it makes that portrait sort of fascinating where like she's trying to reconstruct not just like who her father quote unquote is like who her biological father is but also it's just about like who was this person that like everyone's talked about to me like i've heard about i have no like conscious memories of really like very few and i find that also fascinating because it's very much a documentary about like the concept of perspectives where, like, you have all these different people, like, give their talking heads, and I love where they'll have, like, one of the sisters or the brothers talk about, like, oh, yeah, mom was like this and this and that, and then Michael Polly, her dad, will talk, and it'd be, like, a completely different perspective on that, 
We're just like, oh yeah, mom was like clearly depressed and very sad. She's like, oh, she was very lovely. I don't know, like I, don't, I never got the sense that she was upset. Yeah, she was so fun, like the funnest mom ever. The other one, she hated her life in Toronto. <laughs> like you're like, oh fuck. Like yeah, no, I I found that really fascinating too. It was pretty much everybody they talked to had sort of a different interpretation on on who she was and how she was. Yeah, but the part that I, I was talking about where I was kind of like, whoa, what the fuck. Where, you know, when she goes and meets the actor and you see him like, hey, so there's rumor that you were my dad. And you're looking at this guy and you're like, oh, yeah, that's her dad. Like, even in the movie, I'm watching, like, oh, he's got blue eyes and same color hair. Like, clearly that's her dad. And then she goes to talk to the producer of the play about that relationship. And no, actually, I'm your dad. I'm like, what the right. fuck? Yes. Like, wait a minute. What? Wait. <laughs> and keep in mind this guy, like Harry Golkin, he looks like Albert Einstein. You're like, no. 100%. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, this guy? And uh, yeah, 99.997% prop probability like that was fucking crazy and then it's just like then you see then you meet her other sister meets her half sister has the same gummy smile that she does and they were both wearing the same sweater when they met like it's fucking crazy and then you go back to the original guy it's like well you know because everybody thought you were my dad and it turns out it was uh harry well i guess now i should tell you that yeah we did sleep together once and then, <laughs> yeah. cra- and then to black i'm like wait what <laughs> Uh, I don't want to call it like a, I mean, it is a slow burn sort of documentary where it's sort of just things keep getting added on. And it's a real quiet moments. Like nothing in here is bombastic or crazy. There's no huge reveal of like, you know, criminal past or anything like that. It doesn't become a true crime documentary. Like yeah, no, it doesn't at all. It doesn't at all. Uh, but it just, and there's no real big emotional scenes. Like you get the one brother who starts tearing up. And then the guy Razor, Michael, came tearing up when he's talking about her dying. Which, by the way, I just, I love Michael Polly as, like, a personality in this movie. He's so charming. Yeah, he's like, so charming. He has barely any sense of humor, but when he does, it's, like, real dark. Um, or even, like, there's just, like, really fun bits, like, when he's doing all the, like, narration and Sarah at one point is just like, oh, hey, can you go back on that, Dad? And he, she's just like, I was being so real. Yeah, I was. I was so into it, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, he's he's fucking great, and I love sort of the message it it sort of tells too, or sort of tries to get across. Where it's like, yeah, dude, Harry's her biological father, but Michael's her father. Like she even still refers to him as my dad. Like he raised her, and I love the moment where he's talking about like you know because after Diane died, all the other kids were gone. It was just him and Sarah. And that he got to have these moments with her and become close to her in a way he was never close to the other children. Particularly the way he says, we had a we had a really good couple years there. It's like so wistful and beautiful. Right. And then when he's telling, when she told him about Harry, she comes around and gives him a hug. And he's like, that's the first time you'd shown any kind of affection like that since you were a child. And even then, when he's reading the note at the end, and he's like, you know, the fact that I got those two strong hugs, you held me strong and hugged me strong like when you were a child, is worth a thousand words, and it's worth more than any of this. And it's like, oh my god, you motherfucker. <laughs> it's like, it's so sweet and just beautiful. And But then, also the stuff with Harry and Diane, you get the, you get the real sense that there was a beautiful romance there. That he right. really thoroughly was in love with her, and it, and that's the other thing about this too that they easily could have done. They easily could have s- sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, slut shamed Diane or made her out to be this horrible person because she had extramarital affairs, and they don't do that at all. 
No, that's that's what I really love is the early yeah, part of the too. movie, like the first half of it or so, builds up Diane. It's just like a person that everyone would want to like know. Every uh-huh. person would want to be around. Like it's so like sociable and lovely, and apparently it's just like such a big like extroverted person. And I just I love the fact that they build up so much about her with that, and then even like why she had the attraction to Michael and how they like met during a play, and she just kind of fell in love with like the guy he was playing in the play necessarily right. and then it came to terms of like oh wait no uh he's not like that he's very introverted and doesn't want to like go out but like they have a weird like still like it's an opposite to track kind of thing that kept them together for so long even there's the point where she has the affair and then like it seems like oh everything might be rocky and then michael like just starts writing her love notes and then they get back together and yeah. it's sweet and like it, it really sort of sells beautifully how like oh like Diane is like this very this complicated person but at the same time someone who you get a full portrait of even if it's through different recollections from various different people. Yeah, and even the fact that there's times where Michael is like, you know, I understood why she took a lover. He's like, I don't blame her. He's like, I encouraged it almost. He's like, because I couldn't be there for her, and you know, and it's it's a really sort of frank discussion on sort of sexuality in a relationship and a marriage too, to where it was very important to her and not so much to him. And, you know, it's just, that was part of their many problems. And it's just kind of his acceptance of, you know, yeah, I was definitely part of the reason for the affair for sure. Uh, Just, and he's not really mad about it. He's not upset about it. And he's just, it mainly, you know, a, because like he said, he got Sarah because of it. And B, it's just she's gone. Like, what? What is there? What is there to be upset about? She's gone. There's nothing that can change. It happened. Mm-hmm. And I guess my main takeaway from this is how beautiful and perfect just the general acceptance is of a person for all their faults and all their you know sort of charm and the goods and the bads and just how it's okay to still sort of idolize that person and you don't have like what they were just another person. Like Diane was just a person who had, you know, wanted to live above where she was and wanted more excitement out of life. You know, she was married young, uh, went through a horrible divorce, problems with the kids and then married a guy who she thought was more exciting. And turns out he wasn't and had more kids and not to say she didn't love her kids. She clearly did. Or even that she didn't love Michael necessarily. Yeah, right. But she didn't want to be relegated just to Michael's wife and these kids' mother. She wanted to be herself, too, and discover sort of her own passions and her own life and things like that. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, uh, you know, I'm I'm a father who's getting out of a long-term relationship now and things like that. And you sort of forget to take time out to be yourself. You sort of relegate yourself to oh i'm husband and dad or you know wife and mom and that can really fuck with people's head and it sort of becomes the finality of the whole situation is terrifying sometimes and i think she sort of came to that conclusion early like this is not all that i am this is not all that i want to be and for some people that's all they do want to be that's all they strive to be like michael was completely fine with being husband, mm-hmm. dad, worker. She wasn't. She wanted more out of life. And, you know, she realized it. And it sounds like, you know, later on in life, she kind of had a, a good life. 
And I mean, yes, she, there was adultery and stuff, but she was enjoying herself. She was doing what she wanted to do. She was working in the theater. She was having a romance with this other man who was in, you know, into the arts just as much as she is. And it, it's just kind of, it's super important that you figure out who you are to. You don't just relegate yourself to right. being a half of another pre-existing relationship or things like that. Like, yes, I'm a dad. I'm a dad. First and foremost, always will be. It's my favorite thing I've ever done. But I also, you know, am taking time. Obviously, that's why I went on sabbatical and stuff like that. I'm not exactly there yet. I mean, it's going to take a long time. But trying to figure out who I am at the same time. And it's just, you know, I'm almost 40 years old. And I'm just now really just now doing that for the first time since I started dating my wife, which would have been, fuck, 15, 16 years at this point. And uh, it's a scary journey to take, but it's also exciting. And, you know, it, it helps when you have people in your corner, almost like how Michael was or Harry was or people like that who are there for you. Like everybody, even the people she that knew she was having the affair and her brother who and all this stuff, like they were still pulling for her at all times. They were super supportive of her. That's what makes the movie so endearing and awesome, where it's like, yes, this is Sarah Polly's story to figure out who her father was to figure out more about her mother. But it's also Diane's story, and it's Harry's story, and it's Michael's story, and it's her brother's story, and her sister's story. It, I, to me, it's just a really nice sort of story about coming to terms with who you are, where you came from, who they were, and where you're going, and sort of just having to look at it all and accept the things that you cannot change. and you know, progress. You just have to move forward. And I, I think it's a really sort of sweet, beautiful movie for that. Well, and I think another big thing with like sort of the poly of adult, it's not just like an investigation necessarily for her. Cause like what I like is that there's several points in the documentary where all of her family members who are like being interviewed say just like, what do you want to do with this documentary exactly? Like, what, what exactly is the goal here? And I think what I like is the fact that Polly is able to, like, be very naked about, like, I don't kind of know. Like, I don't know if I'm going to release this documentary. I don't know what I necessarily want to do. And what I kind of love is, like, with something we haven't even talked about that much, the recreations, where there's a lot of moments where you see, like, sort of flashbacks, quote-unquote, of, like, Diane and Harry and all these other people that are, like, clear, that are reenactments and stuff like that based on, like, these different things that we hear. It's also very much, like, what it kind of, at least what I feel it comes to, is, like, Sarah, not only is, like, I want to find out all this stuff, but also I want to present this portrait of, like, who my mother was and what she meant to people. And have that with, like, especially those recreations do a beautiful job and how they, like, blend nearly seamlessly with, like, the actual footage. Like, though the first time I saw this movie, I genuinely was, like, floored when I saw, like, Polly like, filming some of those segments and shit like that. Where it's just like, oh, my God. You watch it again, it's very clear the differences. <laughs> like, sure. I was just, like, so swept up in the story that I was just like, oh, no, this is all, like, clearly <laughs> real footage. I was like, that close-up they have on Harry when he's contemplating things at the funeral, clearly that like, was real and didn't have any kind of, like, intentionality to it or whatever. And I, I love that the movie also feels very much just like, I want to present this tribute to especially my mother, who was an entertainer, was, like, an actress and wanted to be, like, a bigger sort of, like, performer and, like, give her some kind of, like, a documentation of what, like, at least everyone thought of her as. Yeah, right, exactly. And uh, yeah, I never thought of this as sort of an investigative piece either. Like, that's what I went in kind of thinking it was going to be, but that's not what it is at all. Uh, it's it's more just about discovery than investigating. Like, uh, you know, and even the fact is that, like, she basically, I mean, it wasn't confirmed, but she's known since she was a child that, and everybody else did, that 
Michael probably wasn't her biological father. Right, they joked about it. Yeah, it was like an open secret, a joke. Yeah, all that stuff. You know, this movie's from what? 2014, I believe. 2012. Jesus, 2014. <laughs> I wonder what year it's from. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize, you know, either that, you know, the good thing about it, at least she did get to, you know, for Sarah Polly, she was able to find all these things out and sort of have any kind of relationship with Harry Dolkin and all that. Because, you know, I mean, he passed away, what, like six years later, I think. Oh, and even Michael Polly also passed away not too, like a couple of years after this as well. Yeah, right. So, I mean, in a weird way, I mean, it's definitely closure in a way, but uh, it's just thinking about that and how they've, a lot of them have passed on now and things like it, it just makes the film even more like endearing because like, oh, thank God she got to at least do this. Right, and at the very least, they even also are able, because you mentioned the whole thing about, like, not slut-shaming Diane. I also love the fact that, like, uh, Harry isn't treated as, like, the evil. Like, no. Evil, like, I, I never wanted anything to do with you. Just like, no, like, we realized that, like, I wasn't really your father, and, like, she wasn't really going to come up and, like, you know, we're not going to have, like, a live-in situation anyway. So we just kind of mutually said, like, no, Michael's actually your father, and I completely respect that. But at the same time, he has that giddiness almost about just, like, because his wife talks about, like, oh, he was so excited when he came back and he was like kind of bouncing up for joy like it was the first time i'd seen him like so happy in so long i know and then he still has all the pictures that diane sent him of her yeah no i agree he's not the villain he was genuinely in love with diane like he genuinely wanted to make it work and things like that it just it didn't and he was accepting of that like i said michael's accepting of it of of sarah and you know her sort of lineage and harry being her biological father he, he, he I mean, straight up says like it changes nothing between us. yeah doesn't matter i don't even like that he, his reaction to that isn't even in just that it's just like you know this is a really great story which is like true it's a really interesting story and that gets yeah, him to no, like totally. actually write again and be creative for the first time in decades and i understand and the thing is even when harry wasn't really he, he's not plus wasn't plus on the idea of the documentary and sort of the angles it was taking, but ultimately he was accepting that that if that's what you want to do, fine. But I understand his side of it too. That's the thing. Even that doesn't paint him as villain. He was like, well, it's kind of my story too. Like it's, I'm the only one now who can speak for what happened with me and Diane and blah, blah, blah. And, but you get it. Like you get where he's coming from, but at the same time, yeah, he's still there for her. Like, okay, if this is what you want to do, I'll be a part right, of it. And, and plus, like, and his whole explanation is kind of like the thesis of the actual documentary, which is beautiful, where he just says about, like, when you get other people's perspectives, it's shaped by, like, what they knew about the person and their own personal biases. And it's like, yeah, that's like being human, <laughs> what everyone kind of has. Right, exactly. It's a sweet documentary, man. I, I really did enjoy it. Um, I, I'm not as, I don't think I'm as plus on it as you. Like, it's not like, one of my favorite things I've ever seen, but I did really, really like it. Yeah. I think it just hit me at a very interesting time where like back then I was still in college and I was just like, well, this like blew my fucking mind, man. It's so beautiful and emotional, but I still do really love it. And I think it's a big Testament to like Polly as a filmmaker where like, she obviously just recently won uh, best as, uh, adapted screenplay Oscar for women talking, but I think like all of her movies do such a beautiful job of like showing that kind of perspective of people who have like these inherent flaws to them. 
like with Away From Her or um, Take This Waltz. Those are all, I think, really great movies about people who have very inherent, like, flawed relationships, especially when those two are about, like, marriages that kind of fall apart for very different reasons, uh, even from this, like, this movie in particular. And I think she has such a really great grasp on, like, very personal perspective stuff. And this feels very much like her kind of taking those interests and, like, self-applying them, but not in a way that also feels, like, masturbatory necessarily. It doesn't feel just like, oh, this is my amazing story and everything. Just like, no, it feels like this is, like, someone, like, sort of going through a therapy in a way, but not in a way that's also, like, um, oh, I should leave the room, this is awkward. It's like, no, it's like, this is something that she, like, kind of needed to do, but at the same time, it's incredibly fascinating and kind of universal to some degree for anybody who, I don't know, has a weird family that has, like, fucked up shit in their past that, like, not everybody talks about. It kind of feels almost cathartic in that way. To, like, see somebody express that and get that out of, like, other people in their family. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I completely agree. Um, but yeah, I don't know, uh, Adam, any, I guess, final thoughts here on Stories We Tell? Uh, no, not really. Like I said, I, I think it's a really good documentary. It's a very uh, sort of moving story about a family and sort of making your own family and accepting your own family. And and I, and I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Holly's, you know, always been an interesting filmmaker. Like, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of everything she's done, but I think everything she's done is unique. And uh, that's, you know, that alone says something, and this is no different. Like, there's nothing, no other documentary like this one. I mean, there's documentaries about finding your roots and things like that, but they take different angles compared to what this one does. And, uh, yeah, I really, really like it. Yeah, none of them have necessarily the, the additional layer that we didn't really talk about, like Sarah Polly's past as, like, an actress. And how that also kind of affects it where that whole sequence where she talks about, like, the tabloids nearly, like, leaked it out, and I had to, like, yell at them over the phone while I was dressed up in, like, caveman garb for that Mr. Nobody movie. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, like, such a great bit of this movie. But, yeah, it just shows that, like, even, like, for her, where, like, she kind of went into that business in her own way and realized that, like, oh, well, my parents have a history in this but, like, I don't really know that, especially my mother necessarily as well as I did previously. And, like, having, like, this sort of, like, cathartic thing for her also ends up, like, weirdly, like, connecting her to her family in a more interesting way. Where it's like, well, all this stuff happened, but yet my entire life still happened at the same time. Which I think is, like, really beautiful and touching. Where it's just, like, your your entire life was sort of, like, under a previous notion that you kind of vaguely were aware of. But then you find out the truth of it, and it doesn't, like completely shatter your concept of like what your family's life was and what like the, those relationships meant to you and if anything just strengthens them even more because like wow all this stuff happened and i still got to like become the person i was because of like my father and my mother and my entire family being that and i love even like the chemistry that everybody has like there's the great bits where like one of her brothers is talking about that and she's trying to explain the documentary and he's like oh is this a good angle for me is this good? <laughs> do, do I look good in this particular light or whatever? It, it, it's really beautifully handled. Where I get like a full portrait of like what this family sort of chemistry is and who all these people are. And uh, yeah, I think it's a beautiful documentary that is like more of what I would like kind of want. Like this is more my slice of documentary, quite frankly, than like, like you mentioned the true crime or like the heavy investigation things. It's like, no, not necessarily just like a nice intimate story that gives you more immersion in like the lives of real people. I think it's a beautiful little thing. But now, let's get to our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. 
Double, 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 uh, just because I analyzed it a little too much and things like that. Uh, but now that I've watched it, you know, fuck, 11 years later, uh, I'm really quite fond of it. I think it's uh, a fun movie. It's uh, Looper, the Ryan Johnson, Joe Scott-Levitt, Bruce Willis movie. I don't want to say too much about it for in just in case nobody's seen it, uh, which is crazy. But uh, yeah, I just think it's a solid sci-fi sort of action thriller. Uh, filled with really good performances, questionable uh, practical makeup for some reason. He already looked enough like like him. They didn't really have to do all that. But uh, it's I think it's just a super solid movie. Joe Scott Levitt, Emily Blunt. I mean, hell of a cast. Jeff Daniels is a villain. Crazy, but he really works. Uh, yeah, Looper. Uh, just a really cool little movie. And then uh, for my bad, briefly, I have the sequel to the Piranha 3D, uh, which was super fun. And then they came out, I think, I don't know, a year or two later with, I think, the very limited release, directed DVD, Piranha 3 Double D. And uh, it's garbage. It is just, takes everything the first, uh, its predecessor did in terms of sleaziness and thinks that what made it fun and thinks the answer is to, you know, fucking dial it up 10 more notches. And uh, all that does is make for an unwatchable, just questionably offensive movie uh i don't it's not fun it's just kind of gross out humor for gross out humor in a lot of points and just nudity for nudity's sake which worked in the first one uh but it it just yeah it's just a lousy fucking movie um and i heard there's another one coming out which i wouldn't be surprised i kind of hope not but uh yeah it just uh perfect example of a shitty direct-to-video horror sequel. Uh, yeah, I have seen both of yours. Um, Looper, I think, is pretty great. It still is, like, I was probably my least favorite Ryan Johnson movie, but I still think it's pretty great, because I think that guy is incredibly consistent. Um, Star Wars fans who have certain feelings about The Last Jedi can throw How tomatoes at me. Dare I don't care. Right, good point. Uh, he ruined everything, actually. Not Book of Boba Fett or any of these other... Bucket. Or those fans themselves in general. Yeah, right. uh, yeah no, it was Ryan right. Johnson, the director. No, it was all him. Um, but motherfucker. But, <laughs> but but yeah, I think uh, Looper works pretty tremendously for me. I I would say that I agree with you. Like the makeup is the biggest problem I have because yeah, Joseph Gordon-Levitt to Bruce Willis, like it's not that big of a leap to say like oh yeah, young version of Bruce Willis. Sure, why not? Because I think, honestly, that kind of weird um, makeup kind of I feel like that kind of led the way for like a lot of the weird de aging we've gotten has happened since then. It feels like, oh, let's not do makeup. Let's do a de-aged version of young Bruce Willis. It's like, no, let's not do that either. That's way worse. Why are we doing that? Um, but, um, yeah, we, we there's a lot of, like, fun sequences, like, particularly all the stuff with, like, Paul Dano's character. I think it's tremendous, like, that whole sort of, like, set piece that involves his character. Um, I think it's tremendously done. Um, and I, I would say, if anything, my biggest problem is, like, once it goes to sort of, like, the stuff where Emily Blunt's character enters, it's not, like, my favorite necessarily. I, I think that's where the movie kind of like slows down to a bit more of like a crawl than it has to. And it was kind of like more of this like fun, tense sci-fi thriller uh, prior to that, but still 
very enjoyable overall. Um, and then Piranha 3 Double D, I think the, the problem with that one for me is that with Piranha 3D, what worked about that was I had you, you had like Alexandra Aja, who sort of took like, okay, we're doing like a dumb B movie, kind of like what Piranha sort of in theory was spoofing, but we're going to play it very straight. And that's going to be the entire humor of it. Like, Adam Scott is going to be this, like, weird, very serious kind of, like, action hero saying dumb lines in the middle of a movie where, like, penises get ripped off and shit like that. Like, that's the fun. Or, like, the, the whole, like, uh, ballet bathing sequence where, like, they, they almost, they, they treat like, oh, no, isn't this a gorgeous, beautiful thing that we're doing this in the middle of, like, uh, you know, with, like, Jerry O'Connell's, um, you know, very Girls Gone Wild-esque uh, piece of shit character like there there feels like it's more of just like oh we're like doing this with like a sort of tongue-in-cheek but we're never showing our tongue-in-cheek as opposed to piranha 3 double d it feels kind of like the movie that piranha 3d and even the original piranha were spoofing to its complete detriment it feels like it's just like oh let's do the sort of sincere version of that uh, that has, like, no tongue-in-cheek, but also has, like, all the skeeziness without any kind of, like, the the cleverness to it. It feels definitely just like we're just doing a TNA horror monster movie. Not even a very good one, necessarily. Um, and also probably one of the worst examples of, like, why'd you bring Ving Rhames and Paul Shear back? Like, we, they come out of completely nowhere and add nothing to the movie. <laughs> and, and stop with the fucking Hasselhoff shit. Yeah, let's shoot started after SpongeBob. Like, that was the yeah. apex of it. But anyway, so my choice is now here for the double redo. Uh, my first choice here is one that has gotten a reboot as of recently, and I, there was a lot of controversy around this original film when it came out for fans of the book series, apparently, and it's based off of. Um, I have Jack Reacher uh, starring Tom Cruise, which kind of felt like, along with, you know, like the Mission Impossible uh, Ghost Protocol like that, and then Jack Reacher, kind of felt like the beginning of the sort of redemption action movie tour for um, Tom Cruise after all the shit had happened uh, with the couch jumping and whatnot. And I think Jack Reacher, it was popular at the time, enough to get a sequel that was not very good necessarily, and then it kind of like died on the vine after that. But the first Jack Reacher, especially like I revisited it around the time we did our Tom Cruise episode, is like such a fun tight little like actioner enough like weird personality to make it like stick out from like your average sort of like um b-movie sort of thing with like the Werner Herzog Bond villain character that shows up and some of this other stuff but despite that like, you know that Tom Cruise apparently does not fit what the original sort of version of Jack Reacher was that the tv show recently kind of like portrayed I still get the sense that this dude's a badass motherfucker I don't want to f- be on his bad side whatsoever like the whole scene where like those asses are at the bar and he's just like hey you want to step outside and he just kicks their fucking teeth in is so good and it feels like kind of the perfect sort of like Sunday afternoon movie honestly to me where it's just like there's a lot of like tense thrills like particularly the that opening sort of like snipe moment that happens and then the like the explanation of it later from uh jack and all this other stuff is like so wonderfully done and uh it, it does such great stuff and it's directed by chris mcquarrie who of course uh, would later go on to direct all like the mission impossibles after this and it's a really solid directorial flourish from not his debut because that was like wave the gun way back in the day but this is i think believe his first movie since then and it's tremendously directed and it sort of shows like it's him testing the ground for like what he would later do with like those great mission impossible movies with like bigger budgets and all this other stuff and uh, yeah i just think it's a kick-ass little movie that uh, i think deserves more attention in uh recent years um but then my bad one 
It's an animated film, um, and this is from Illumination, which this was around the time they had just done Despicable Me, and they were gearing up for like that franchise and the Minions and all other stuff, and those movies I'm not necessarily a fan of, but feel largely harmless, except maybe the first Minions movie, which is atrocious, and uh, one of like a, a pretty bad um, sit for any person above the age of like three, uh, but at the very least... They're doing that with their own property. That's fine. They can do whatever they want with, like, the minions or whatever. I have a lot more of a problem when they take the Lorax, which is my choice. Uh, they take Dr. Seuss's source material, which, you know, recent events have kind of determined, like, oh, yeah, Dr. Seuss isn't necessarily sacred. Like, he's not somebody who's completely free of any guilt or fault or whatever, necessarily, if you look back at some of his books. But the Lorax feels, like, so pure to me. It's just, like, it's a book that's about, like, preserving the environment and having a character who kind of, like, represents the um, affront that, like, man has done against nature. And, like, it feels like so much more like a sincere, genuine book about, like, so much of that. And uh, Illumination turned that into, like, the most crass, commercial, patronizing movie to, like, not just, like, any adult who would be watching, but even to, like, children. It feels so much like an insulting movie that, like, the only weird legacy of it was, and this is a very much early 2010s thing. There are certain people who um, were fans of the Onceler character on Tumblr, and that became like a whole sort of weird meme. I was kind of phasing out of like any kind of Tumblr-related things around this time, so it felt very odd to me. But overall, yeah, this, this movie, though, at its core, it just feels like it is the crass, commercial, dumb version of the story that had like some kind of acorn of purity that like Seuss originally envisioned for this. It's completely like disintegrated with this movie and it's like so like aggressively annoying and just feels like it takes a lot of like the themes and the designs that dr seuss had and just completely just puts them into like the most conventional dumb pandering bullshitty version of a movie not helped also by all of the like really insulting tie-ins that the marketing had where it was like oh hey you like um you know save the environment with the lorax while you also ride in our fucking like subaru suv sponsored by the lorax it's like guys fuck off what are you doing <laughs> even any of that aside the movie doesn't help to sort of feel like this crass commercial version of what seemed at least like a very honest sort of story about you know actually giving a shit about something as opposed to a movie that's like crass and cynical and commercial and uh i think teaches all of that shit very uh insultingly toward children uh yeah i've seen both your choices uh i really do like jack reacher quite a bit as well the sequel's fine i guess but yeah i really like jack reacher i love Werner herzog one of like only two or three jai courtney's that i actually like too uh he's yes, really good true. in it yes uh I love the bar fight scene. It's great. Uh, my favorite thing in the movie is when Tom Cruise is on the phone with Jai Courtney, and he's like, I'm going to stomp you to death and drink your blood from my boot. Yeah. And you're like, holy <laughs> fuck. <laughs> he ain't fucking around. Uh, no, Jack Reach is really cool. Exciting gun fights, uh, car chases. Oh, yeah. The car chase with the helicopter is amazing. Oh, it's so it's fucking great. Yes. And a really fun Robert Duvall. Yes, who pops in very late in the movie. And, yep, and, and he's awesome. Ass. Uh, yeah, I really dig Jack Reacher. And uh, yeah, the Lorax is garbage. Uh, I saw it probably, I don't know if I saw it at the theater. I can't think of, I mean, I might have gone with my sister at the time because she would have been, you know, in her, her like 10 or 11. Uh, I want to say that's the case. And uh, I was bored to tears and kind of offended the whole time because, again, I've never found Dr. Seuss to be really like a super sacred thing. I think there's a couple of his stories like, 
that you know are considered sacred, like the Grinch, Cat in the Hat. I would never call Lorax one of those, but it did completely pollute and sort of bastardize any sort of message that the source material might have had just to make this pollute being the operative word. Uh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to make this commercial clusterfuck of a film. Like it's terrible. And you know, on paper, Danny DeVito as the Lorax, great casting. Doesn't work. None of the voice acting works in this movie. Uh, Ed Helms is horribly annoying. Uh, it just, it, the whole thing just doesn't work. Uh, yeah. Lorax is garbage. Well, uh, let's repeat our titles for everybody out there in case you want to add some or remove some from your watch lists out there, Adam. I had, for my good, Looper, and for my bad, I had Piranha 3 Double D. And for my good, I had uh, Jack Reacher, and for my bad, I had The Lorax. And we're going to be getting to the end of the show here, so stay tuned as we do our picking for next week at the very end. But first, got to thank some people, like Chris Oliver for our intro and outro music uh, used for the show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water on various socials. That's Night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, for all of his great stuff out there on the internet. And thanks, of course, to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash DEDBpod, where for just $1 a month, you get to do stuff like vote in polls, uh, which, you know, the poll uh, ended up getting us this particular episode topic of 2012, so thank you for that. And uh, you also get to listen to bonus podcasts. We just recently put out our March Madness for Best Animated Film. You know, we put out the bonus episode last week that was uh, from last year, where we did the best movie sequels and stuff. And uh, we have that other one for Best Animated Film uh, that is on the Patreon right now. For $1, you can listen to that. And uh, it's a doozy. It's over four and a half hours long, but it was <laughs> Yeah, long. I was going to say, if you like the one about sequels, uh, you can get about another hour worth of material on the new one. So uh, enjoy. Yeah, quite a lot. And then also, there will be a poll uh, this particular Wednesday, and it's for a very special occasion, Adam, because, uh, like I said, our anniversary episode's coming up in about a month, and, uh, you know, we, uh, for our big anniversary episode, we kind of contemplate what we're going to do five years, what's, like, the big thing, and we decided to do a fun topic idea of special edition, which is to say, we're going to cover a good and a bad movie we've covered previously again. Because there are certain ones, especially from the earlier part of the show, where we're like, you know, we didn't do justice to that particular movie. So we're going to be like, you know what, let's give it another go. And uh, you have the bad picks for that, which the patrons get to vote for. So uh, which two choices, Adam, do the patrons get to vote for, for like what we can revisit and cover again on the show, potentially? Well, I picked two that uh, for different reasons. One is that I felt kind of unfairly got chosen for the bad. Uh, and another, which uh, is just so fascinatingly bad that uh, I feel can uh, have another go around. For the one that I felt maybe not necessarily uh, is a bad movie, I have Tango and Cash. And for the most fascinatingly bad movie, I have Nothing But Trouble. That's true. Yeah, um, the, we covered Tango and Cash on our Sylvester Stallone episode and Nothing But Trouble on our Actors Playing Multiple Roles episode. Um, I mean, either one of those, there's more to talk about that we didn't even uh, scratch the surface on, particularly Nothing But Trouble, man. Uh, I mean, there's yeah, a lot. we could do a whole show. Just <laughs> we could do an entire, not even just one episode, but like a, a, the Nothing But Trouble Minute, a podcast no one would listen to. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you all get to vote which one of those we get to recover. Um, but yeah, you get access to, you know, like I said, those that bonus episode and a bunch of, like, hours of bonus episodes, and though you can get to vote in polls for just that $1 a month. It really uh, helps out, keeps the show going, 
Really appreciate it. And you can follow us on places like Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, you can also uh, email us feedback uh, over on our email, uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, for more of me, you can find me on Twitter and letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And you also do some writing at both uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. And you know what? Just another shout-out while I'm here. Uh, Hiel Peralta was a guest on our uh, little you know Patreon uh, thing for the March Madness. Just a shout-out to her and uh, Film Cred Review, which is a show I produce that uh, if you join the Film Cred uh, Patreon, uh, you can uh, listen to that show. She's great, and I love producing that show with her. Yeah, she's good people. You can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam, A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. I'm on Letterboxd at Schwanson, that's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N, and I'm on Twitter at Schwanson underscore Says. That says S-E-Z. And uh, for more of us, please, you know, follow, subscribe, whatever, to uh, us on various platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other places like that. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to the other great shows that are here on the network. And you can also dig into the archives on our Podbean main feed for, you know, several, like almost 200 episodes before we even joined TFS. And if nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that $1 can mean a lot to some people. We, we understand that $1 can affect anybody. Uh, but, you know, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because it gets us more visibility out there. Or give us $5 a month. You could do that, too. It's, it's not yeah. restricted to just $1. Yeah. Let's do that. I'll take as much as you can give us. Why are we telling them not to give us anything? Yeah, just give us, <laughs> give us all of it. <laughs> Life savings, please. We give you so much entertainment. <laughs> this quality show. Yeah, that is never has audio problems or anything. No, never. Never never any technical difficulties necessarily on this show. But now, Adam, it's time we did our picking for next week, which, you know, we do this at the end of every episode where um, uh, one of us has two good movies, one of us has two bad. We switch up on the quality of that depending on the week. And, uh, you know, we um, have assigned each of our choices number between one and ten. And uh, the other person will choose randomly a number and that whatever that is closest to gets us our good and our bad feature. So, for example, um, Adam has the two good choices. And I could say I want to go with number three. And it'll say, okay, that's close to number two, which has this particular movie on it. That gets us the good movie. And then we do the same thing for the bad choices. And uh, this is this will be interesting because keep in mind, Adam still has something in his back pocket. Because uh, ever since last May, uh, he and I were given vetoes to use one single veto that we had used before uh, our anniversary comes up. Uh, in this case, it'll just be in about a month. Um, and Adam still has his. He hasn't used his yet. And he has to use it or lose it. So if he hears one of my bad choices, for example, for this particular episode that we're going to be picking for, um, he can say, actually, I don't want to have that particular choice covered. I'm going to take the cannoli unless that choice is gone. And we have to go whatever other choice is there. And we have an interesting episode here that the timeliness of it kind of got us uh, was affected by our delay that we had from last week. But uh, the day we're actually putting this episode out is uh, the 10th anniversary of the passing, unfortunately, of Mr. Roger Ebert, a wonderful critic who inspired uh, me in particular to kind of pursue sort of talking about film and writing about film. And, uh, you know, I've been wanting to kind of do this ever since the inception of the show. And I'm glad we finally kind of get to do it here, which is we're going to be covering uh, one of Roger Ebert's great and one of his 
worst movies of all time. Like, the movies that he said were either one of his ones that he loved so much and one of the ones that he thought was the worst possible. And I think it'll be interesting to cover, and especially talk about the history of Ebert as a critic. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it's an interesting, cool, unique topic. Right, yes. And you have the good, I have the I bad. Mm-hmm. So, very curious, Adam. For your good picks, um, I'm going to go ahead and pick number 10. All right, at number 10. I have a movie that I recently watched within the last couple years uh, as sort of a dive into this particular actor. And I've been dying to do an episode on him on the show, and this movie in particular is fantastic. I have Dog Day Afternoon. Oh my fucking God, yeah. Yeah, wow. buddy. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. A classic awesome movie. Fuck yeah. I, would, I, would, I have. It's been ages since I've seen Dog Day Afternoon, too. It's Hell so yeah. good. It's so yeah. good. Wonderful. Great. Awesome. What was your other choice? At a number three, I have a movie I haven't seen in years, but I remember fucking really liking it. It's a detective movie starring Jack Nicholson. I had The Pledge. I have not seen it. The movie exists as like a poster to me. Where it's yeah, like Jack Nicholson kind of bald, and he's got a mustache, and it's all grainy. It almost looks like Seven. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Reason. It was that era. All those posters looked like that. Yeah. Right. Skeleton Key was that poster. You know what I mean? It was just yeah. a lot of movies kind of like exist like that for me. But yeah, sure. But fuck yeah, Dog Day Afternoon. Love that movie. Great. All right, Adam. Now. Fuck. My two bad choices, and keep in mind, the the worst movies Roger like hated, like I showed you that list. It's a rough list. It's a doozy. Really yeah. terrible movies. So Yeah. I'll just go on the opposite end. I'll go number one. Alright. Number two, I have a movie that uh, was one of the ones he really truly hated. It's not one I've seen, but it's a comedy that's kind of infamous for being like one of the oh, worst fuck. movies of all time. I have uh, the Debut, I guess, only directorial effort from Mr. Tom Green of Freddy Got Fingered. Now, Adam, <sighs> you have that veto and you don't have a lot of other opportunities. I know, you, I know. Do you want to use it on Freddy Got Fingered? See, I've seen Freddy Got Fingered. Um, oh, here's the thing. There's a lot of problematic stuff in that movie that I don't know that I feel like talking about. A lot of it. Uh sexual assault type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, all right. Now I guess I'm taking the cannoli. Oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> gotta do it at some point. Well, all right. Uh, we're not going to be covering Freddy Got Fingered then, so we're going to be covering the movie I had... On the opposite spectrum of things, at number eight, a movie is also a comedy, and uh, from what I understand, also has some problematic elements to it. We're covering oh, North. Rob Reiner's North, oh, baby. Oh, no. Have you never seen North? <laughs> nope, I've never seen either oh, of these movies. Oh, get ready to fucking oh, boy. hate yourself for a couple hours. <laughs> I, mean, oh. look, I think I would have hated myself for either of these, right? I think That's true. Been... No, that's right. true, but at least with Freddy Got Fingered, you're like, yeah, this is. I knew this was going to be terrible. North is so perplexingly bad. All right. You know, oh, hey, boy. That, well, that's better than doing a raven, quite frankly. <laughs> At least there's yeah, more to talk about. I mean, about. I'll give you that. All right. Fuck so, yeah. So, north. we're going oh, north God. and Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, you know, one of the most celebrated films of all time and Dog Day Afternoon. Yep. Two classics. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which we'll cover 
next time. But until then, everybody, uh, I, I guess quote the Raven nevermore, right? Sure. Yeah, we'll go I got nothing. I got nothing. Yeah. Fuck off. <laughs>